Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters coming to you from our home on the big island of Hawaii. I am Tim Merriman, your host. This is the very first podcast in what will be a weekly series on Friday mornings. I will visit with guides, interpreters, trainers, and interpretive managers from all over the world. I must start by thanking Mark Stoffel on mandolin with Frost on the Pretzel from his Coffee and Cake album. I'm pleased to tell you that this first podcast is with one of the most well-known and respected trainers, professor, and lifelong interpreter, Dr. Sam Hamm. This will take a couple of minutes to properly introduce this old friend and colleague, but you may learn something new about his long and impressive career, so stay tuned. Dr. Sam Hamm is Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Center for International Training and Outreach and Professor of Communication Psychology in the University of Idaho's Department of Conservation Social Sciences. Sam's professional journey has been strongly defined by his commitment to providing professionals in the heritage, tourism, and sustainability communication fields the best and most current practical advice for making positive differences in the world through their work. A prolific writer, his more than 400 publications include two best-selling books, Environmental Interpretation and Interpretation, Making a Difference on Purpose, which has been published in whole or part in 12 languages. He also has edited 10 other books for Fulcrum Publishing's Applied Communication Series. Sam's tour model of thematic communication is considered best practice across the world, continues to be applied successfully by protected area managers, interpreters and guides, tourism operators, museums, botanical gardens, zoos and aquariums, nearly 60 countries. It has also become the basis for communication campaigns aimed at large scale behavioral outcomes in municipal sustainability programs, as well as in travelers philanthropy. Sam's many honors include being a Fulbright scholar and fellow of the National Association for Interpretation. He also received Clemson University's William C. Everhart Award for his lifetime contributions to heritage interpretation across the world. The National Association for Interpretation's Grant Sharp Award, along with several academic distinctions from the University of Idaho, including the Award for Teaching Excellence, the university's highest honor for teaching. And you already heard the introduction about him. I, there's just perhaps no one like him out there in the profession. I think we were wow. in Sweden, Sweden at an international conference, and that's the last time we got to talk. So it's a I I'm delighted. It's well, thanks for that. It's actually been ten years. I can't believe it. It seems like it's been much more recent than that. But but uh, that uh, that does ring a bell. I remember that day specifically with the uh, at the seminar at the at, at the university I was actually attached to for three years uh, in Sweden as a visiting well, that's professor. That's right. Yeah, and and uh, there are all my friends suddenly from the United States and Canada and elsewhere uh, in the same room there in Sweden uh, in the in the in in that little classroom where uh, where we met for the first time and then attended the conference afterwards. Thanks for inviting me to do this. I'm honored that it's the first interview. Um, uh, but I I thought about this podcast concept and and. And thought, you know, this is a really good idea. It, it it could serve a really important purpose. And then instantly I realized, of course, Tim Merriman's at the forefront of it because I really, if I could pick anybody that would be that would have the idea to start something like this, it would be Tim Merriman. And 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 that's because Tim, you um, 
have such a long history, as long as I do, with the in interpretation profession. And of course, served in leadership roles, uh, both in NAI and before that, the AIN, Association for Interpretive Naturalists, for your listeners who don't know what those three letters mean. Um, and and then in with respect to NAI, you were for almost two decades, um, if I remember right, the executive director. And during your tenure as executive director of NAI, you led the charge, uh, led initiatives, including certification and other initiatives that NAI now uh, consider this daily business and sort of take for granted, but they were not taken for granted in those days. And sometimes you had to navigate some fairly murky waters, I know, because I was party to some of them and observed with uh, with admiration from the sideline others and uh, watch the, watch, watch the benefit to the interpretive profession that you personally led uh, during your time. So Thank you for that. But now I've got it related. I've got a question for you, man. Here you are. You're retired in Kona, Hawaii, on the Big Island, in a beautiful place in what I can only describe as God's country. Uh, a perfect retirement. Why are you taking time from such a utopia now to do interviews with people like me? I mean, what led you to the concept at all, Tim? In my everyday life, I'm a coffee farmer. And so I'm out pruning trees and doing normal work for a coffee farm. But I've tried to stay connected. I, I got involved teaching at Hawaii Community College in hospitality and tourism. And that subject allowed me to talk a little bit about interpretation, but really not enough. And uh, oddly, the pandemic came along and handed me the gift of having to switch to Zoom, having to learn new technology. University of Hawaii system was good about tutoring us and helping uh, older folks get better at it pretty quickly. Uh, and then NAI had to adapt. They, they started offering the virtual certified interpretive guide course. And I very quickly offered to do that and started developing. I think I've taught, uh, Lisa and I have taught 11 of them now. Lisa Brochu is my wife. In fairness, I have to tell you, she brought certification to NAI. At uh, the very beginning, the board approved her offer to create it as a volunteer. She'd be the first to tell you she didn't design it all. She put together a, a committee of folks that included a lot of practitioners and professors. And uh, we all discussed how to do it. Yeah, you were involved. And so we end up with this. Uh, program, but now I get to teach it online. And as you may know, there are people that can't get to a face-to-face -face course. And I still think they're better. Now you asked about the podcast and I have to tell you, our mutual friend, pa Paul Caputo is the reason. Now, Paul and I have stayed in touch. Uh, we hired him in 2002 uh, to be the graphic designer for NAI in Fort Collins, Colorado. And Lisa and I were thrilled recently to learn he had been named executive director. He's been there 20 years. And we think he's the right guy. And we we so watched <laughs> yeah. We watched him go from this very talented designer to somebody who really bothered to understand interpretation as a profession. 
and then has grown into this unique role of being a nonprofit association executive this time. He was telling me about his baseball blog. And I think you and he, he share that love for baseball. We do indeed. <laughs> and uh, not a baseball blog. I'm sorry. I was a podcast. Blogger. Yeah, I was a yeah. blogger for a while. Um, he started his podcast. And so I listened into his podcast and I said, how would I do this if I wanted to talk about interpretation? And I thought he might say, I'm not sure that's a great idea. He said, I would encourage you. It's a great way to stay involved in the field. And he taught me about all of this funky equipment that I have now, headphones and a big microphone and all of that, just to get a better quality audio. And uh, he's been a great coach. So thank you, baseball coach, Paul Caputo. <laughs> Year, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you knew it or, or saw it, Tim, but a couple of years ago, Paul had the idea to do an interview uh, annually um, on opening day of baseball. And yes, I share that passion. That wonderful sport's been a part of my life and my family's life. It's a central theme in our family, as a matter of fact, has been forever. And so Paul selected me as his first uh, 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 interview on oh, cool. opening day two years ago. And and together he and I and Song, uh, who, who uh, his, is his program's manager, uh, uh, had this wonderful hour-long trip down memory lane and all of our favorite baseball nostalgia. And I got to show my signed balls and 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 my T-shirt from in, in Cooperstown from the Hall of Fame Museum where I went back with my son to watch Edgar, Mar Edgar Martinez's uh, induction uh, wow. in 2019. And uh, and Paul and I to this day we have tried. Now I think we're we're three three games now we've seen together um a major league no two a major league game and a minor league game uh here here in the seattle and olympia area where i live now and uh last year in fact we attended a, a atlanta braves seattle mariners game that the mariners won with two back-to-back walk-off home runs in the bottom of the ninth which oh, was wow. <laughs> you know, surrounded by all these braves fans fans who were rubbing it in our faces until those two home runs and then suddenly it was very much that's a lot great. quieter yeah yeah anyway so great great memories of paul <laughs> well as you know he loves minor league teams and he ice cream. wrote the book on it he wrote the and book ice on cream it. yeah and ice cream yeah his sunday hats from uh, exactly yeah. uh, <laughs> i have to wonder after 35 years of distinguished career at university of idaho you moved to emeritus status 10 years ago i was uh appointed the director of a new international center for training and outreach, which I then ran for, I, I was, I was a staff of one and I was a problem employee. <laughs> so I, I often had to sit myself down and have a little talk. Uh, but uh, over, over the years, that was a very successful center. And, and during that time, I developed wonderful relationships with all kinds of organizations and private consulting firms and country governments. When I retired, those relationships didn't end. In fact, they continued to blossom. And not because I was going out and hunting work. I wasn't. I haven't written a proposal or raised my hand and said, hey, I'm here. I'd like you to hire me as a consultant. It's just by word of mouth sure. over the years and goodwill and 
in, in good work, I would, I would have to say that other people valued, they wanted more of it. And that's continued in, in retirement. So my big challenge now has been to try to really to try to slow down and get out of the fast lane a little bit and, 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 and be content. There are many, many brilliant minds and capable people in the world who are well versed now in what I do that are very, very capable of, of doing the work. And so that's sort of my, I'm, I'm speaking I'm training, I'm doing research, I'm I'm writing and editing books and I'm, and I'm mentoring and and I can give you just a few examples. A, a lot of my speaking is all virtual now. Of course, I I work for thir- uh, 17 consecutive years now. We are in uh, in, in uh, for a municipality where you have been, Townsville, Australia for the Townsville City Council, which wants to be a sustainable city. They have wrapped their plan, strategic plan for the path to sustainability, an entire city around thematic communication. And so I've become sort of their go-to guy. The last three years we did it virtually because of the pandemic, but this year they've insisted that that I go back and do it in person again. And so in April, and Barbara's coming with me this time, in April we'll be back to do another uh, workshop um, and speaking um, series. Uh, and and uh, and then I'm doing lots of work for Latin America, for Mexico, the new Interpot, uh, the Mexican Association for Heritage Interpretation presentations for them. I'm really working with them to strengthen that organization. And I think you know they have a contract now. There's they translated a new Latin American version of of my book, Interpretation Making a Difference on Purpose. And I've been helping them through speaking engagements and appearing in other sorts of situations and including a a, a, a what they call the in, in Latin America, it's called the permanent seminar on museology through museums all over Latin America, uh, which which primarily interpret uh, pre-Columbian, Maya and Aztec uh history and heritage and really uh, terrific consulting company called Zeba in Portland, Oregon, on an interesting project related to reducing food waste. This was funded by uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Line and Hilton Hotels uh, to reduce food waste on cruise ships and and in large hotels, tourism-related hotels, um, because food waste uh, has has been linked to about 30% of climate change because of the agribusiness required to produce the food and so reducing food change. And so that's been very rewarding. And then, as you know, I've done a lot of work in travelers philanthropy, which is basically designing powerful thematic interpretive programs delivered by excellent guides and tour operators to their to their to their guests, the tourists to connect those people strongly to a place or to a story about the place such that when given the opportunity before they leave, uh, put a little extra money in a, in, a, in, a, in a fund dedicated to local conservation of natural and cultural heritage, which has now raised millions of dollars, which I'm very, very proud of. And and then, and then finally, mentoring. Um, I do, I get daily, at least weekly emails from somebody somewhere wanting advice on this or that. And so you, you can see from the law, and I apologize for taking so much time to explain all this, but this is really what I've been doing the last 13 years. Right now, I've got a I've got a colleague in Turkey and another one in Greece that are working on different studies that they want advice on the research management methodology. And then, uh, and then it just seems like 
almost every day I get an email from an interpreter somewhere in the U.S. or Canada or Latin America or Australia that just wants advice on this, on this or that. And then we just exchange emails and sometimes we zoom and, uh, and that's, that's all very rewarding. And in between that, I'm spending a lot of time with Barbara, our kids and our grandkids. So, I'm also editing. I have a, you know, applied communication series with Pope Fulcrum publishing right. that I've had for years now. And this past year now, the ninth and 10th volumes have come out and uh, one uh, by Kobe Brockfish called the, the Professional Guides Handbook, which is all about every aspect of adventure and expeditionary tour guiding right? with a fantastic chapter on thematic interpretation. And it's, it's part of my it's part of my series. And I'm just so, so happy to have been able to be the editor of that book, working with Colby and Fulcrum. And now a name that interpreters far and wide will know, Susan Strauss world-renowned storyteller who wrote the first book in my series, The Passionate Fact, international bestseller, um, many years ago, over 12 years ago or so. Uh, Susan now has a sequel that's uh, just out. It's called Tree with Golden Apples. And it is a book in which Susan, um, and you can, get, by going to fulcrumbooks.com, get access to either one of these books, uh, fulcrumbooks.com. Uh, Susan has has done an enormous favor for interpreters and storytellers everywhere who want content. They need you need content to tell a story. Susan has developed the stories and freely shared them for others to tell the same stories. But what she's done, because these stories are about the plant kingdom, the importance of plants in human being history and their sustenance and in their heritage. And she has gone to the experts in botanical sciences to find the scientific parallels that I don't know if the science validates the story or the stories help to validate the science. I think it works both ways. But Susan has invited these experts now to comment on the empirical veracity of the myths that are sometimes centuries old that people have been telling about plants from all over the world. From, from North America to Africa to the Nordic countries to China and elsewhere. And in this book, it's with fabulous illustrations called Tree with Golden Apples. It's just out. In fact, I'm still waiting for my copy of it. So I'll look for anyway, it. Anyway, that, that's it. That's all of it now. <laughs> okay, I'll look for it. I will tell you that we still, in every virtual certified interpretive guide course, we tell a story about your work with Lindblad Expeditions and the Galapagos and donations to the Charles Darwin Research Center. And that encouraging philanthropy is critical. Uh, we, we need more money supporting the good work that surrounds uh, sustainability, conservation, all of these. Yeah. Sven, Sven Lindblad, who's my dear friend and, and, um, and longtime colleague now, the owner, the founder of Lindblad Expeditions, who, by the way, I think uh, he he now has a uh, has a home on Maui where he spends most of his oh, time. Wow. By the way, so oh, you're, wow. you're practically neighbors. Uh, and and uh, uh, Sven once said, uh, and in fact, I use it in the first message package in Galapagos, and now elsewhere because this has been replicated. Now we've done it in the Arctic, in Baja California of Mexico, and the whale waters, right? And and uh, 
and and also working with World Wildlife Fund and Natural Habitat Adventures, another very enlightened, which Lindblad is now sort of their partners now, Lindblad and Natural Habitat Adventures, better known as NATHAB, um, all, all over the world, including in Churchill, Canada, in Manitoba, in the far north where the polar bears gather every winter, hoping that the ice will again congeal so they can walk out and hunt on the ice pack again. Um, and and so it's it's beyond Galapagos. But anyway, going back to Sven, Sven said, in the end, it will be the passion and insistence of the traveler that will save the special places on Earth. And this is the premise for travelers' philanthropy: that governments alone need the help, and 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 that the 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 money that is raised through these travelers' philanthropy programs does not go through a government organization; it goes straight to the ground. There is zero overhead. In fact, Lindblad Expeditions and Natural Geographic, who my partner with Lindblad, they're a, they're a, they're a travel partner. World Wildlife Fund and NatHab are partners. National Geographic and Lindblad are partners in this. That that they don't take in, they don't skim any money off. They pay for the overhead, including to bring in the advisors every year to make decisions on how to spend the money and review proposals and all that kind of stuff. Pay for the lights, the water, and the, the paper clips, right? So 100% dollar for dollar of what is donated goes to on-the-ground conservation of natural or cultural heritage or both and community development. Yeah, we really appreciate that kind of story because uh, Lisa and I have worked quite a bit in Rwanda. In fact, we're headed back there right. uh, in just a few weeks. And we train guides there. And we lead eco-tours to the mountain gorillas and the Virunga volcanoes, uh, their volcanoes national park in Rwanda. And one of the big stories there is uh, back when Amy Vetter and her husband wrote the book, uh, Kingdom of Gorillas, they tell the story that they were going to cut down all the gorilla habitat in Rwanda for a cattle range. And they thought it would bring $70,000 uh, a year to the country. Amy Vetter was an early advocate for gorilla tourism. Her husband was a community development economics guy. And together they got that done. And uh, gorilla tourism overall impact of the country is about $200 million a year. <laughs> that's that's an easy choice, isn't it? <laughs> it is. In a, in a now, country, now that you've seen the benefit. Well, in a country that needs tourism for other reasons, we always tell people when we take them there, this porter is going to offer to work for you all day for $10 and carry your equipment up to see the gorilla so you don't have to lug a camera tripod or any of that well they actually don't let you take tripods in because they look like a gun to a gorilla ah. but, but water and other equipment <laughs> right right those and, porters live in a region where if they were doing farm work all day they might make three to six dollars so to get ten dollars to help people well what usually happens there's so much help that people give them 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 dollars at the end of the day and they make of their fam their family has a different life. So when you say that money just passes through, boy, uh, you put those tourism tourism dollars in the community fast and effectively. It's yeah, you do, you do. There's a whole organization I can't remember the now now the name of it. It's got a website, but it checks all philanthropic oriented organizations and institutions. It checks 
the percentage of money that is actually spent on what they call program or implementation and how much is actually go to paying people salaries and overhead travel and et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes the, the percentages are, are terrifyingly low. Terrible in the United States. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm getting full well exactly what you're saying, Tim, that that dollar for dollar direct, what a philanthropist wants is a direct thread from his or her heart to the benefit that they envision on the ground. They want that line to be as straight and as direct as possible, right? And when you eliminate all the bureaucracy that eats up so much of the resources, right? Then that thin that line gets pretty tenuous, pretty pretty hard to see. And and so so this is I think this is a good thing that we're both onto. You, you know, there's another thing I've been working on now with Fulcrum, actually going back to the 90s, but it's 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 really evolving now that 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 um I guess I'd like to mention because a lot of people don't know about it except a few organizations around the world and Fulcrum Publishing and I. But back in 1992, when 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 my first book, Environmental Interpretation, was published, people don't uh, most people don't know this, but the Spanish version came out actually almost a year before the English version did. And the reason was that I had a contract with the U.S. State Department, U.S. Agency for International Development, to put a thousand copies in Honduras. Right. That would be used not only for park interpreters and their parks, national parks and protected areas were just getting started then, but also in the hands of extension specialists that were working with campesinos and agroforestry and soil conservation and stuff that needed to know how to communicate better. So that's really how that happened. But I worked out a deal with Fulcrum that they would sell the English version. And of course, I would get the normal royalty that you'd get from your contract with a book publisher. Uh, 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 but the University of Idaho would sell the Spanish version from which I took no royalty and all the proceeds were used to help fund the graduate student projects for master's and PhD students from Latin America wow. in my department. And that's what we did for years. And then once I retired, I had this idea and I talked over with the president of Fulcrum Publishing and the owner um, Sam Shinta and Charlotte Barron, respectively, um, that, you know, why don't we try this on an international scale with, with, with all my books, including environmental interpretation and then more recently, uh, interpretation making a difference on purpose and give the opportunity for an organization, a professional organization that emphasizes interpretation give them the opportunity to acquire the rights. So they're going to have to pay for the rights. They pay Fulcrum Publishing. No royalty paid to me at all, because that's not important in this. To pay Fulcrum Publishing an agreed-upon negotiated flat fee, which tends to be very small. Yeah. Now they have the rights to translate the book, produce the book, sell it, and keep all of the proceeds. Proceeds to support their own programs and professional development programs for interpreters. Right? That's wonderful. And now, now the, well, the Spain Association for Heritage Interpretation, the AIP uh, is their acronym, produced the European version in Spanish, which really wasn't working in Latin America. And so we recently negotiated with uh, Interpot um, uh, uh, Mexico, with Manuel Gandara and, and Antonieta Jimenez, what I, who I just mentioned, the professors from 
for Mexico, uh, who began, who were founders of the Mexican Association for Heritage Interpretation, to produce a Latin American version. Um, both these organizations sell that book and support their own programs. And in addition, I gave um, the, in, the Mexican Association for Heritage Interpretation, I gave them the rights to my first book in Spanish, in, Environmental Interpretation, Interpretación Ambiental, gave them the rights which they could either sell uh, or, or give away, but they, they give it away as an incentive to people who want to become new members. And so then wow. they get the PDF of the, of the and so that's where, and now it, it, environmental interpretations also in besides English and Spanish is also in Latvian, Latvian and Vietnamese. Interpretation making a difference on purpose, I think in eight languages now, it's got the European Spanish, the Latin American Spanish, it's in Russian, it's in Swedish, it's in Farsi, Arabic, it's in Japanese. A new a new edition is coming out in Korean. Who Jin Lee, you know Jin Lee, is, is doing that translation in in Korean, uh, and uh, it's uh, we now uh, are ready to sign another agreement uh, with an organization in France to do a French version, which I know the Canadians were, are are going to be very yeah. very happy about, and also uh, another one we hope in Portuguese, followed by another one in Italian. That's amazing. And portions have been have been published portions of the book, not entirety, but in the same model for the Czech Republic, Poland, Bulgaria, Thailand. These, these books are producing money that these organizations otherwise would not, a source of income they otherwise wouldn't have access to. And I just have to say, you know, that, that uh, when, when all is said and done, and, you know, I hate to talk about laying on my deathbed, but, but if I were, and I was thinking about all the things that mattered most to me in my life. That'd be a, that'd be a long list to choose from because there are a lot of things that have mattered to me. And of course, my family is going to be at the top. But these efforts would be somewhere right below because of of the multiplier effect and the good that the good just keeps on giving. And it and and so just I just wanted the thanks for the opportunity to let people know about that. It's important. Well, that's great. I, I'm thrilled for you and I'm thrilled for them because, as you know, in so many of these nations, they have no access to a professional association. They have no, no. they may not might not have a library system that provides them access to key research resources and getting uh, books that are very practical. I mean, you had the word practical in your first book and it right. was uh, it was really important that they have a way to actually have something that let them get out and do something differently the next day, not just a lot of uh, research that may have been difficult to understand without that practical application interpretation that you gave with your books. I want to yeah. take you, I want to take you back a bit. How did you start? How did you get into this field? When something happens in a person's life in one moment in time, and it truly transforms them, sometimes you wonder if that person maybe not a little flaky, <laughs> you know, because you know when you have a life-altering event. But indeed, I did have one. I was in Jackson, Wyoming, uh, staying with friends. Both Barbara and I were. This is prior to when we were married. This. These people were actually friends of both of our families. And then Barbara and I were definitely romantically involved. And, and uh, uh, after I finished uh, active duty uh, with uh, uh, Air Force uh, National Guard, I returned to the U.S. 
and and went to Jackson, Wyoming, drove there overnight from Seattle and uh, met Barbara and, and stayed with this family uh, called the Schellenbergers uh, in Jackson, where she was uh, spending the summer working at a gift shop, a tourist gift shop, making money to go to college next year. And I was going to follow her to college at WSU, Washington State University. Joe Schellenberger, who was a ranger at Grand Teton National Park, was giving a campfire program one night up at Jenny Lake in the Tetons and it asked me if I wanted to go with him. I said, sure. So we got in this old red pickup truck and we drove up to Jenny Lake and I watched this tall, handsome man put on that ranger hat with that fire on the side with light, with side lighting coming from the fire half half illuminating his part of his body. And then the first rear screen projection system I ever saw, I was blown away. I can I said, where's the projector? This <laughs> were appearing behind him and he wasn't casting his shadow on the screen. I know yeah. <laughs> some people listening to this team won't even know what I'm talking oh, about. Sure. The ambience was magical. And I looked at Joe and then after it was over, listened to the applause and watched a group of people go up to the fire to talk more with him about the web of life. And then when it was all over, we were in the truck on the way back. And I said, Joe, that's really cool. I think, think I'd like to do that. What, 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 what would it take for me to do that? And Joe said, go somewhere and get a degree in forestry or botany or something and then apply to the National Park Service. And that was it. Based on that alone, I followed Barbara to Washington State University, enrolled in a bachelor's science program in forestry, and was lucky because I said I had an interest in recreation, wildland recreation. A brand new professor from, from Ohio State University, his PhD was still dripping wet, right? his dissertation, became my advisor. His name was Dick Shue, Richard Shue, S-H-E-W. And between Joe and then Dick Shue's mentoring over a period of years, I never looked back. So that night at that campfire program literally led me on the path to being first interested in being an interpreter. And then through Dick Shue's mentoring of me, an introduction in communication psychology, because it was Dick that first put the idea in my head that interpretation is not magic. We might describe the results as I did from my experience at Grand Teton as magical, but the process of interpretation itself is not magic. It's not gimmicky. It's not trickery. It's not, you know, a magic trick. It doesn't produce results that defy logical explanation like a magic trick, <laughs> but it is strategic communication. It is professional, premeditated intentional communication designed to achieve a specific purpose and that any interpreter could do this if you just boiled it down to practical application based upon the empirical science behind it, but applied and easy to understand in plain language. That, if anybody tried to capture in a sentence of what my career has been about, it's that, making well, that esoteric psychology practical and valuable and useful to real world interpreters. Well, and that leads into the next question, uh, just to say TOR, T-O-R-E, was a real key component when we were developing the Certified Interpretive Guide course. We had conversations with you. You approved our use of materials you had developed in the curriculum. We added 
purposeful, which we felt very strongly about, which shows up in your second book very strongly as well. And we allowed uh, that why made it an easy acronym, uh, exactly. poetry. But still, the, the key part is if people aren't paying attention to you and they don't remember anything you said two days later, and they don't care any more than they did when you <laughs> began your talk, you haven't done anything. But it's entertain. It, it's if, entertainment. If, if, yeah, if it's you were, in fact, entertaining, right? It, yeah. Right. So how did uh, T-O-R-E become this key to your work? Because it, it was serendipitous. Uh, I mean, not, not in the sense that I just made it up one day. In fact, it was exactly the opposite of that. I was immersed for over a decade in research, trying to understand what are the empirically substantiated, plausible pathways to making a difference. Not by crossing your fingers and hoping to get lucky, but something better than that. What would give you the greatest chance Nothing's guaranteed. Human beings are complicated. But what would give you statistically the best opportunity, the greatest likelihood of making the kind of difference you wanted to make through communication? And I looked in all of the communication psychology literature, primarily in cognitive psychology and, and, and a lot in social psychology as well, but cognitive psychology specifically. And going back in during this decade or so period to studies that had been done a century before, this stuff is not new. We know so much about how communication can influence us. And so it just occurred to me that wouldn't it be helpful to an interpreter to have a better sense of what these pathways and mechanisms to making a difference could be. And so that's when I began to look at, to put into categories, what are the lessons learned? from this research, if I take it and synthesize it and break it down into, into its sort of its component parts or categories. And the first thing that came to mind, well, it's gotta be enjoyable. If you don't have people paying attention, you can't make any difference at all. So the first thing you gotta do is you gotta capture and you gotta hold their attention long enough to do something. <laughs> Otherwise it's entertainment for entertainment's sake. So how does entertainment happen? Well, to pay attention, it's gotta matter to them. So the E for enjoyable, which is enjoyable to process, relevant, the R, it has to matter to them. Relevant isn't what we just know about. It's what we care about. It's what matters to us, right? So you can lead a horse to water, but if the horse isn't thirsty, if that water is not relevant, that horse is not going to drink it, right? And we all know that. And so R, so there is the E and the R. And then the other category that came out was that, well, you can't overwhelm them. It can't be too difficult. You can't throw too many facts at them. You can't use, you know, complex language and academic mumbo jumbo and, 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 and it's got, it's got to be organized. You have to make it easy to follow, effortless to follow. That's where the E, the R and the O came from. And today I will tell everybody the entertainment industry is an O-R-E industry. That's the E-R-O spelled backwards. If you make something enjoyable to process and make it matter, connect it to what matters to people and easy to process, they're going to pay attention to it until the cows come home or unless one of those elements is no longer no longer there. Right. And that's what entertainment is. 
it's holding attention. And so there's three of the four letters. There's the E, the R, the O, and now remaining the T. Three-fourths of an interpreter's job is entertainment, Tim. Three-fourths, three of the four letters, right? And so I, this is not a smack at the entertainment. I would never say to an interpreter, you're just entertaining. I would say, well, you're entertaining, but then what? The idea is to hold attention long enough to do something, and the something is to make a thought-provoking point. Not a point they'll necessarily remember or even agree with, but a thought or a, a point, an idea that makes them think their own thoughts, make their own meanings, because around that theme, I call it, we all call it, I think, most of us now, around that theme, if a person thinks their own thoughts, caring can result because the only caring any of us is capable of doing will come from the thoughts we ourselves think. So this was the thinking I was doing when I created the EROT framework, and I called it the Interpretive Approach to Communication. And, and I first published it in 1992 in my first book, Environmental Interpretation, and Interpretación Ambiental in Spanish, right? But shortly after that, and I didn't realize it until, until um, sometime later, I was up in Alaska, I think it was in Seward, uh, giving a, a, a training workshop at the Kenai, um, I think it was the Kenai National Park. Anyway, uh, a woman in the audience looking at EROT says, oh, I get it, Sam. She said, what you're talking about is two-thirds erotic. And I looked, at she was right. All you got to do is add an I and a C, <laughs> and you get erotic. And then I started telling that story because I thought it was funny and clever. And then the next thing I know, there's a flurry of people, one after another, <laughs> trying to figure out a way to add an I for um, imaginative and a C for creative or colorful and, and so forth. And finally, and you knew Greg Seepin. Greg came and visited you in, yes. in, from Australia at uh, Gatton College in, Bris in Brisbane, Australia. Greg and a colleague uh, wrote a journal article published in a journal of distance learning and actually called it the erotic model for distance learning based upon the EROT framework. Right? So at this point, <laughs> I had already decided because the EROT came from my, my concern, getting the audience to pay attention and then making the thought provoking point. But then I realized what I needed to do to make this, to make this framework work better for a applied interpreter was to turn it around and put the T first because arriving at that thought provoking theme should be the first thing you do. And then you concern yourself with entertaining. Oh, easy to process easy to follow, R, make it connect to what matters to the audience, and E, enjoyable to process. And so that's how Tor then became the part of it. The key now going back to poetry is that the Tor is, I call it the Tor core. <laughs> it's the heart of poetry. And in NAI's case, not so much an erotic, because that was just clearly an attempt to make up a clever acronym. In the case of poetry, while there was an intent to create an acronym that would be memorable, it's also useful for training an interpreter as a profession about how being an interpretive professional should look, how an interpreter should be if you want to have the privilege to do your work at all. Purposeful, be mission-oriented, even if it's your own personal goal, be trying to accomplish something. Otherwise, it could be entertainment for entertainment's sake, what you and others have called interpretainment. 
and the why. And the why I thought was particularly useful because it makes the point about long lifelong learning and professional development. You, the interpreter, who's always becoming, always growing, always getting better, right? So P and the Y to be around the core. I would love for NAI and the CIG, if they would just do this, to, to ha have a in the in in the table of contents under planning your program or program planning, I think, where the Torah model and poetry are discussed. Just to put the P and the Y at the top, and then put a box in the middle around the T O R and E, and just make the point that we're teaching poetry, but the Tor are the applied part. They tell you how to make Absolutely. the difference, how to communicate, and the P and the Y tell you how to be the best possible professional. And that's to me is, is the way I put, and I am honored and pleased NAI going back to, to, to Lisa and you from the earliest days of your certification efforts and through the, to today, I haven't met, uh, I think, I think it's uh, Kat is the new training director, uh, but I worked with, with, uh, with Emily Jacobs for years. Even she, she uh, asked me to help her with the TOR and E and the current iteration of the of the CIG training manual. Uh, we've had a great working relationship and, and and never any complaints because NAI honors, flatters, flatters me in the in, in the most meaningful way that someone who's trying to do what I'm trying to do could be flattered. And that's by say these ideas are valuable. Let's incorporate them at in our training. Right. And so there are no 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 complaints. But sometimes sometimes I hear, and I recently actually heard from a colleague, I was asked to record a video to introduce a new CIG group to Tor. And so I, I did that and I told a little bit of this story, right? But one of, the, one of the people involved in that said to me, quite accidentally, but it 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 it's revealing to me about how this happened. She said, Well, well, Tor, and then she added, Well, now it's called poetry. And I <laughs> well, it's it's the core of poetry. It's the Tor core of poetry. But Tor is the cognitive psychology behind the interpretive approach to communication. And I would simply like it recognized as that. And I think there's value to that, too, because it also tells interpreters to pay attention to people who do research on interpretation on these four letters, right, that there's something to be learned that relates to both the P what you're trying to achieve that is plausible, empirically plausible, but also the why. Part of being a growing, lifelong, learning, improving interpreter on the path, always on the path to professional excellence, is staying abreast of what is new and what is learned about your field, right? And that's what the TOR and E provide a framework for doing, and that connects directly to the why as well. So thank you for the opportunity to... <laughs> expound upon th those four letters that quite literally have changed my life um, because they've been so widely received in such a positive way all around the world. I will tell you that the P part, the purposeful, I used to wonder where I got off on that because it became very important to me at NAI. But somebody recently sent me an article I wrote 45 years ago about interpretation has got to be aligned with the mission of the organization or the personal mission of the individual. And the reason I, I remember that I'd forgotten the article totally, but uh, when I worked at Illinois state parks, along came a recession. There were 77 of us working in interpretation in Illinois state parks. 
55 seasonals, 22 full-time. They fired everybody but four. I was one of the four that survived. Congratulations. Yeah, when I asked the- And the, and the, and the rest of us can thank you <laughs> for, for a long time afterwards. <laughs> well, when I asked the director of the department, or the associate director who was in charge of interpretation, I said, why did four of us survive? He said, we get too much mail about how much the teachers in your community love you and the community. And we were afraid to get rid of you. We wanted your money. We would have fired you if we could have figured it out. He said, let me ask you a question. I got rid of 73 people and no one has written a letter of complaint. And no superintendent is asked when they can have their interpreter back. Uh, too often, we were doing mm. stuff that was fun for us. Yeah. Uh, that I think it was Bob Roney at uh, National Park Service who came up with uh, interpretainment. Interpretainment. Is that correct? Is yes, it Bob Roney? Yeah. Yes. And uh, I thought too much of what I've seen done in our field is that it's, it's entertaining and maybe it exploits the passion of that individual about some hobby or whatever. But guess what? If the organization doesn't value you, uh, times will get tough. What we know about economic cycles is there eventually will be a time when the budget is cut. And too often we've been the icing, not the cake. We've got to be the cake. When Ren Smith, Smith. yeah, suggested the why, I like the idea in training of talking to people about you can't change your audience. They're whoever they are. You can't change the content. It's whatever it is. You're the one that has to grow. Yeah. You're the one that has to change. And it can't be, I earned a certificate. I'm there. I'm a professional. It's got to be professionals grow their entire careers. And so. And Tim, I'm really glad to hear you say that because this video I recently recorded, the, invited to record to introduce a, a, a very recent CIG course. I made that point. I, I said I said um, that um, today through the certification, or, or I said in the next few days, as you complete your certification course, uh, this this marks the beginning. <laughs> and I was referring specifically to the why. So I was really glad to hear you say that. And I also said I'm I'm, I'm sure this is going to be a great poetry session, and that your instructors will deliver a course of tour quality. <laughs> Wonderful. Let, let me take you a different place uh, for a moment here. We've talked quite a long time about uh, some of these important topics, your books and your international work and tour. Uh, do you have another book in you? I mean, you're retired. Do retired people write books? <laughs> I, I've been asked. I actually I've been I've been file building for um, eight years thinking of doing another edition of interpretation, making a difference on purpose. There's been new research, but nothing that's changed Tor. It's added to it. But so does that serve a useful purpose? I don't know. Um, but I've um, got a, I've got a big fat file folder full of hundreds of things that I've been looking at, but I think I'm at the point now, Tim, where I'm going to concentrate on, I'm still editing books with Fulcrum. I, I still want to continue to do that. Uh, but I think I think I've said 
what I have to say. And I know, I know that sounds like, you know, planned obsolescence. It, it's, it's not, but, but the fact is over the past 30 years or so, nothing has changed in the research record about thematic interpretation. And, and, and in the broader context of thematic communication, because it's used in non-interpretive context as well. I mean, the lawyers, for court, courtroom argumentation are using it and advertising and marketing firms are using it and tourism uh, governmental bodies focused on tourism all over the world are using are using it in in defining experience the thematic interpretation is at the core of of a memorable tourist experience when you make connections to places you remember them forever um and and uh, and even Cam political campaigning is using it and so uh, law enforcement using thematic communication. And so I'm looking, I'm going, you know what? I had, I had my, I had my, my opportunity and I think I've, I made the most of it. And so that's a long answer because part of me wants to write another book, but I don't think I'm going to, I'm 72 now and I'm rather enjoying reading other people's books. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. When I think about all the international training you've done, you just explained you're going back to Australia. We, You and I have chatted before about the stress and strain of international trips on your body and your mind. The long haul, the long haul trips across oh. lots of time zones. Yeah. When you do a lot of them. Yeah. I'm over, over, over 60 trips now. Yeah. Down under wow. over 60, you know, and you know, and that's from Seattle to LA and then LA to wherever I'm going. And then when I'm there, then usually in-country flights somewhere else. And it's just hard. And, and, and the people say, Oh, you're so lucky to travel all, all the time. And I say, you know what, if you do it for a living, you, you find that the travel is the least favorite thing I do. Now being there and working with great people, which I always do, you work with an interpreter, you're going to work with a great human being, chances are. And so that's all really great and rewarding, but getting there and getting home is no fun. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Uh, you've been a, a very serious researcher while also being a great teacher and mentor to other people. Uh, of the importance of revenue generated by tourism, the place you're trying to protect is better protected. Absolutely. And so that's the link that we always need to make, I think. And that is the work you would, I have done a lot of research on, on interpretation of tourism. When I first started the center um, for international training and outreach, it was based upon a business model that at that time, U.S. foreign policy was sending lots of money to Latin America, where I was doing a lot of my work in those days because I speak Spanish and I knew the region and was well connected. Right? And suddenly then the bottom fell out of the Soviet Union and that whole and then U.S. foreign policy changed on a dime. And suddenly the money in Latin America dried up and all of it went east to Russia. In fact, shortly thereafter, I was working on a Siberian tiger conservation project in in Siberia, right, uh, on on interpretation, and and uh, and and. But at that time, just going back to the center, now I had all these. They'd already hired another professor to teach my courses and advise my PhD students, and and. But I was responsible for paying that person's salary, Tim. That was that was what I had to do, and and. Uh, 
um, my work was anyway. And so um, uh, I had to look elsewhere. And that's when I realized how many people in the world outside of the United States, where there still to this day is not enough emphasis by the private tour operators in the U.S., and the interpretive dimension of the experiences they claim they want to offer to their turn. There are organizations in Australia that recognize that immediately. And I couldn't, and I was constantly going the the, 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 the state of Tasmania in tourism uh, in, in, in Australia and their, their government body called tourism Tasmania branded their whole strategic approach to experience around thematic interpretation. In fact, they called it the Tasmanian Experience Strategy. And in it, I was honored they cited me, but they said that that no longer is interpretation in Tasmania just entertaining fact-giving. It is rather the heart and soul of a memorable experience. And that and, it, and and that then led to the, the the national government of Australia through its its it's called the Cooperative Collaborative Research Center, and they had a sustainable tourism sleeve to it. Right, I was sudden suddenly then being headhunted to help with projects in Australia, right? To and and then gave me access to research money I never would have had access to. It didn't exist in the United States or elsewhere at that time. And so, which allowed me to do a lot of the work that I, that I then have since published and, 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 uh, uh, and, and, and built my reputation on to the point that National Geographic and Lindblad Expeditions, Natural Habitat Adventures, World Wildlife Fund, around the world, uh, the, connection the direct connection between interpretation and tourist experience was being recognized long before it was in the United States. And, um, uh, but in recent years, um, I've seen a lot of, a lot of attention being paid to it. I mentioned natural habitat adventures, uh, which, which operates tours all over the United States heavily emphasizes interpretation and has involved me in a lot of their work. And, uh, and, and also I can name so many other companies, but one that comes to mind is actually where you live. It's, it's Rob Pacheco and Hawaii forest and trail, uh, which by the way, contributed some photographs for interpretation, making a difference on purpose as well. I should add that. Um, and Rob got on this a long time ago about how interpretation could add not only to experience, but also to conservation where he started giving his, his guests on tours within Hawaii Volcano National Park. The opportunity at the end to help protect the park. And that help involved getting out of the bus, putting on gloves, and pulling, pulling introduced ginger out of the forest, right? To clear, to eradicate this ginger from, from, from the forest. And uh, that proved out to be a proved to be a very very popular activity that his guests loved and even thanked him for the opportunity with their own hands to physically help Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, which greatly deepened and enriched their experience and made it more memorable. What do those people want to tell about when they get home? About pulling the ginger, you know. And so it, this is a this is a wonderful connection of a cause and effect. Um, series of events that can happen when interpretations 
value within tourism can be seen and harnessed at a professional level. And it is it is happening in the United States more now. And I and and, and I trust I'm I'm looking at uh, uh, Mario Cardonato uh, with the Washington D.C. Uh, professional Guild of Guides, uh, who's now, by my urging, um, became an NAI member and, and recently got her CIG and now her CIT. She's a trainer and she's now training training guides. And she also now is a senior training advisor for the World Federation of Tourist Guides Associations, which which expands to the entire world of tour guiding. And so this is this is how this little this little recognition of, of cause and, of, and effect that you and I have experienced in our, in our own work has now grown in the hands of other people taking it places that I couldn't envi have envisioned a few years ago. And yet, nevertheless, here it is. It's very rewarding to see. I would tell you, I just saw a uh, Hawaii Forest and Trail ad on Facebook with a picture of Gary Dean, their most senior guide. And Gary is the picture on the front of our personal interpretation book that you wrote a beautiful foreword for. And uh, so Rob Pacheco and Hawaii Forest and Trail is doing great things. And he has just been a key player uh, with the Department of Land and Natural Resources on the islands. His, his interest in getting people to understand matters. And by the way, I we teach very often we bring up Tilden's quote of through interpretation, understanding, through understanding, appreciation, through appreciation, protection, and lay it over that uh, uh, social marketing model of moving people from curiosity up to stewardship and say, Tilden even bothered to pull that out of an NPS, a National Park Administrative Service, manual. Administrative yeah. manual and credited yeah. them. You said, I don't know who said it, but it was brilliant. Right. So you knew uh, I wrote an article about that. It published in the Journal of Interpretation Research, and, and I called it from interpretation to protection. Is is there a theoretical basis? And I addressed the question, was it reasonable for him to say? And 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 the thing was 2014, I think. I actually it, remember it, that. Yeah, I and, actually remember and, the article now that you mentioned it. And at the end of the day. I had to conclude, I've never been one to give my students Tilden six principles to memorize and regurgitate. I've always realized that Freeman Tilden wrote those principles in that book in 1957 for one audience, a US government employee called a National Park Service Ranger. And it was his take on what interpretation should be for them, right? And 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 and, and outside of that context, and some sometimes people have a hard time actually understanding what some of his principles are actually trying to say, right? But two of his principles, the first, and I believe it was the fifth, right? Um, are, are, are so important because the first one says, if it's not relevant to your audience, you're wasting your time. It will be what he called sterile, right? And then he said, we're not trying to teach nothing to nobody. We're just trying to blow them away. When he said, it's not instruction, it's provocation. Yeah. And those two ideas were so ahead of their time, Tim, at least 
30 years ahead of any theoretical or empirical reason for, for having those ideas or for writing such words. There's no research support for them. Now, fast forward some 60 years, and they are as solid based on research that's come out only in the last 30 years, so solid that he was to the interpretation field, not for interpreting our heritage, which also is also an important seminal book, but for those two principles, because he was as far ahead as Newton or Einstein were in their respective fields by saying things that nobody else had ever thought before, because he just knew it. Yeah, <laughs> and that, and that's that. That to me is is an amazing thing. And by the way, I concluded that 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 was at the end of this journal article I'm telling you about, um, from interpretation to protection is there a theoretical basis, right? That was a conclusion that I drew, right? Regardless of how you feel about this man or his work, because he does have some critics, and we know who they are in the National Park Service in particular, right? You must realize that what he did was so far ahead of its time that prescient. we have to conclude that he was prescient. Lisa and I were working on the first certified interpretive guide manual. Uh, your book and tour and all of that was a real important core to what we were doing. The other thing we got to do, I mean, I got to go to Nicaragua and El Salvador to your kind invitation and observe you doing what you do so masterfully with uh, their audiences. And I also saw you in Australia back in those days doing a yeah. <laughs> uh, course down there. The other thing we got to do, I got to go to uh, Harper's Ferry and spend time two weeks with Dave Larson doing training yeah. and Dave Dallin. And oh my, Dave Larson really punched the uh, Tilden quote of through interpretation understanding. And And for me, light bulbs went on when I heard you later say, well, with understanding comes that deeper thought, that reason that somebody might actually, you might influence their attitudes that might change their their behaviors eventually. And it's not at a snap of fingers. Uh, we don't we don't light people up such that their life is different the next day. But if we get them to think, and they think more deeply about it, and we've given them good fodder for it. It does change their lives. Do you do you hear that over and over again from your past students? From your yes, yes, of course I do. Of course. Why would you ask such a silly question? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, but a couple of things you really have me going here, Tim. Um, I said earlier one clear thing we know in cognitive psychology is that caring is an attitude. It's an attitude, it's a value when something matters to you, right? Where can caring come from? If somebody tells you to care, does that make you care? No. Caring must come from our own thoughts. We think thoughts that make us care. If an interpreter wants an audience to care, they've got to get them to think their own thoughts, make their own meanings. Even if those meanings are wrong or factually challenged or morally objectionable, they nevertheless are the only source of caring that person is capable of doing. Right? That is where Dave Larson and I met and found common ground. And here's a story that I've never told you. 
very few people know it. And now I guessing from your podcast, a lot more are about to know it. You said I wrote a very nice forward for your book. Well, you wrote a very gracious forward for mine as well. But but Tim, you you were my second choice. Not not because you were second place, but because as I was writing interpretation, making a difference on purpose, I saw and something in 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 um, meaningful interpretation the the booklet compiled by David and others uh, for the National Park Service Interpretive Development Program took a couple of shots at thematic interpretation. He said, if, if you if you if you want to send a message, get a telegraph. <laughs> and and I David, you're not quite understanding what I'm saying. And so I called David one day and we had a conversation. And I explained to him, oh, no, no, it's not about telling people what to think. David, it's making them think, think their own thoughts, make their own meanings. It's exactly what you're saying, David. We agree on this. We didn't need to be contentious. And we had a great conversation. And that started us on a journey as I would write parts of my book at that time. This is now in probably 2008 or nine. And I'd send a draft to David and have him comment on it. And then we'd have a conversation. These conversations would last from a few minutes to an hour, each one talking about interpretation and meaning making and not instruction, but provocation. And, and eventually through all, it, these were nothing short of little, little epiphanies for both of us. I realized that David and I had arrived at the same way as seeing interpretation through two very different pathways. I, my pathway was by paying attention to the empirical record. If it wasn't supported by my research, and I mean a lot of research, then I didn't have confidence in recommending it. But when I saw consistent findings, it gave me the confidence to say, okay, I'm going to call it this. I'm going to call it E. I'm going to call it O. I'm going to call it T. I'm going to call and, 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 and that's how I arrived at TOR, which is a question you asked me earlier. David, on the other hand, arrived at the same understanding through a different way of knowing. He, like Freeman Tilton, and like others that we both know and could name, just saw it, just knew it through their own experience and intuition. And if I had to say which way of knowing I value most, I, I think I would go with the intuitive thinker because it saves a lot of time. The, the trouble is we never know whether intuition is correct until we sub subject it to inquiry and research, right? But uh, after all of that, I said, David, I'm going to publish this book. Would you be willing to write the foreword? And he agreed. And then we know that tragically and suddenly he died of a heart attack just before I contacted you and you were the clear second choice. Had it not been for the experience with David, I would have invited you to write the forward anyway. But you will notice in the preface that nobody reads the author's preface, but I wrote it because it mattered to me. I tell about what I'm trying to accomplish in that sure. book and why. Right. But then I tell a, a story about David, uh, but I don't say that much. Um, but I talked about how impressed I was with his understanding of interpretation and how we work together, the phone calls and all that. Right. But then you'll notice on the dedication page, I dedicate my book to four people, my three grandchildren and David Larson. Yeah, I have to say when David's death was announced, I crashed inside because yeah. uh, 
you know, in those early days, we were we were looking. Your work was a big part of what we put in that course. We were looking at Gross and Zimmerman's books and the good things in those. Sure. We were looking at Knudsen, Cable, and Beck, and uh, Cable and Beck. Those guys have done amazing stuff, and we you bet they have. Going and spending time with David Larson it was just thought provoking all day long, every day. He was one of those people that was a deep thinker about what we do and why we do it. Let me say this. We're running out of time because this can't be a month of Tim and Sam. (laughs) Is there anything we've missed that you wanted to talk about? No, Sam, thank you for the opportunity to not only give some thoughts to things. I appreciated the opportunity to give thought to and to express myself about but also the trip down memory lane, which is, you know, a couple of a couple of older guys, you know, um, reliving some really important experiences in their lives. And that's been, um, for me, the, the greatest personal uh, get back that I get from this experience with, with you today. Inter- interpreters are so important to me. I've always considered myself to be an interpreter. Um, even as a professor, I thought of myself as an interpreter. In fact, I won a teaching award, the university's highest award for teaching. They give one a year, one professor at the whole university. And I won it one year. And the president of the university in the award ceremony handed me the plaque and, 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 a, and a nice check, by the way, that I used to help make a down payment on my daughter's first car. She said, so what, did you, what have you done exactly? Professor Ham to become such a good teacher. And I said to her, nothing special, really. I just practice what I preach in my classes. And then I added, I'm what one profession I know about would call an interpreter, which caused now a big conversation from the small group of people around us. Well, what is what exactly are you preaching? And what is this interpreter thing all about? Right. That's how important interpretation is to me. It's been not only what I did as a ranger and, you know, I was myself a field interpreter for many, many years and, and all that, but because of the approach to interpretation that I believe in, that I, that I, that I've derived from the empirical record and from listening to, to the wisdom of people like you and David Larson and, and Corky Mayo and, and other, I can name Robert Fudge, so many and the Larry Becks and Ted Cables and all of our current colleagues that 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 is so important to me not because it constitutes simply whatever legacy i'll eventually have but rather because it constitutes the tangible difference that i and others like me have always wanted to make i'm not alone in this obviously right and so that's what i would like the the, the thought i would like to sort of leave everyone with is that this is a real good thing we've got going, and this podcast series that you're doing helps to perpetuate and, I think, put a punctuation mark on that same value for interpreters and people who communicate strategically in whatever context everywhere. So thank you. This was longer than what our usual podcast will be, but catching up with Dr. Sam Ham took some time. Thanks for joining me and Sam today, and on next Friday, listen for a conversation on this podcast with Paul Caputo, Executive Director of National Association for Interpretation, my former job for 17 years. I look forward to catching up with Paul on every front.
Lisa Brochu, my wife and training partner at Heartfelt Associates, and I continue to offer training of several kinds. Our next virtual certified interpretive guide course is May 1st to 11th via Zoom. And you can learn more at NAI's interpnet.com website on their certification calendar. Also, Lisa will teach a virtual interpretive planning course three hours per day from May 22 to 25, followed by a four-hour contract management course on May 26, all via Zoom. The details and registration form are at heartfeltassociates.com slash training. If you have an interest in being on Reflections on Interpretation, just contact me at timfmerriman at gmail.com and I'll get back to you. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel and Etherton Switch Publishing Company for use of their music. And now for more Frost on a Pretzel, have a wonderful day. Aloha. <laughs>